Taking a look at things internationally, we are seeing uh, some strong restrictions, in some cases reintroduced in places in Europe and other parts of the world. And Shane Woodford is on the line with us now, freelance journalist based in Denmark, used to work here at CKNW. Shane, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Always a pleasure, Jill. Good to hear your voice. Oh, I saw you uh, posting about this, not only what's happening in Denmark, but to other places, France and some other countries as well. But we'll start with Denmark, where you are. What is happening there? Yeah, in the last two days, uh, today and yesterday, Denmark has seen the two highest uh, daily numbers of new coronavirus infections, uh, 700 and change yesterday. Uh, today, 859 new infection cases, and Denmark health officials are looking extremely nervously at their EU neighbors, where in some cases, in a matter of just weeks, they've gone from holding the line on infections to just a flat-out um, and outbreaks that, that pale in comparison to or exponentially more than what we saw in the spring. Italy, for example, Jill was holding the line until just two or three weeks ago. Now it is setting new daily records for infections far greater than it saw in the spring. So Denmark is extremely nervous, and they have brought in a bunch of new restrictions that will take effect as of Monday. Uh, so what happens on Monday? So on Monday, they're going to see all alcohol sales in the country end at 10 o'clock in the evening. In British Columbia terms, that would usually mean, you know, bars and restaurants and that kind of stuff. In Danish terms, you can buy booze pretty much anywhere. Grocery stores, corner stores, 7-Elevens, farmers markets, whatever. So no booze can be sold anywhere in the country after 10 p.m. They're also tightening up border restrictions, but I don't have a firm idea yet what that means. The press conference they held just about an hour or so ago, uh, they said they're going to do something with the border, but didn't provide any firm details of that. I'm curious to see what happens there. We have a thing called an assembly ban, which is essentially a lid on the amount of people you can have in any kind of a gathering, whether it's a meeting, a party, uh, a house, uh, you know, some kind of an event at your house, that kind of thing. It's called an assembly ban. That is going to be lowered from 50 down to 10 effective on Monday. Uh, and uh, everyone here is encouraged to sort of reduce their social bubble to 10 people and 10 people only for the foreseeable future. Now, as you mentioned, there's sort of, you know, different reintroductions of lockdowns in various places in Europe. Uh, Ireland is one place, and uh, the Prime Minister here, Meta Fredrickson, um, used Ireland as an example and sort of hinted pretty strongly that they're preparing for a possible lockdown if the situation gets that bad here. But so far, Jill, uh, everything is sort of, you know, as normal as it can be uh, under this, you know, pandemic situation we have here. And I saw in one of your posts as well, and you touched on this, so masks will also be mandatory in all public places? Yeah, and that's an interesting one for Denmark because mask use here, Jill, was virtually non-existent until probably about the beginning of September. I could have, until that point, I could have counted on one hand literally the amount of people I've seen wearing a mask. Then in September... We had uh, a flare-up of infections, and they announced a restriction that you have to wear a mask on all public transit, all public transit stations, so buses, trains, ferries, that kind of thing. Uh, And if you are inside a restaurant and you are standing or moving from one place to the other but not sitting at a table. So then we began to see a lot more mask use. Masks became a little more commonplace. And as of Monday, masks will be mandated in all public indoor settings. So movie theaters, libraries, grocery stores, etc. So that's going to be a big change for Denmark. And uh, did 
did the health officials or when when making this announcement or seeing the numbers going up like this uh, in BC, we, we've been able to pinpoint it that there have been weddings. Uh, there have been some parties, uh, unfortunately, funerals that have been called these kind of super spreader events. And that's uh, what our health officials are telling us. That's where they've pinpointed why our numbers are going up again uh, in Denmark. Do you know what it is that's causing the, the spike? Not there hasn't been a finite reason. The when the numbers began to spike back in September, and there were some real problems that began as sort of hot spots in little places throughout the country, and then is now of course spread nationally. Um, the big problem at that particular time, if there was one sort of thing that people were pointing their fingers at, was uh, young people who were sort of ignoring the danger. They weren't doing the things they should be doing as far as keeping themselves socially distanced. So there was in Copenhagen, for example. Uh, about a month and a half ago, police busted a huge sort of underground party with, you know, two or three hundred young people uh, in attendance. Uh, so that was kind of the big part of the blame. The young people were sort of flouting the rules, not doing what they should. And then the virus began to spread from there. But it's since then, Jill, it's it's just kind of spread. It's just everywhere now. It's gone past that sort of uh, age group of 10 to 29. Now you're seeing infections here in Denmark, largely in the 10 to 59 year old age group. And I know that with the the seriousness of this, parties aren't top of mind as far as priorities. But the Prime Minister did mention as well uh, kind of the traditional Danish Christmas time, uh, that it won't look the same. But people still need something to look forward to. Yeah, it was really interesting. She sort of really struck a line where she kept saying, listen, I know this is tough. I know you guys are struggling. I know this is not an easy situation. But, and then she kept bringing up, you know, instances, we don't have to look too far here. I mean, the country's just a stone's throw from us are just going up in corona flames right now. It's just the situation in Europe is unbelievable. In the space of a month and a half, they've gone from, okay, we're seeing a little bit of a surge to, oh my God, look at these numbers. And so she's saying, listen, if we don't hold the line, if we don't do things now, then in a matter of weeks, we could be in a much, much more serious situation. So, Eula uh, Prokost, which are sort of um, culturally in Denmark, really a big deal. They're like, um, you know, kind of a big Christmas fancy dinner slash Christmas party all jammed into one. And it's something that everybody does at Christmas time. So she said, uh, Meta Fredrickson said, uh, we can't have them like we used to have them. Uh, we got to keep them smaller. That said, there was some sort of hint that she might ban them all together and say we just cannot do that this year. She did not go that far in the press conference, kind of saying, listen, we're going to have to scale them back. But I do have a little bit of hope that if we do the things we need to do, perhaps by Christmas we'll be in a better situation and we can have a little bit of flexibility there, fingers crossed. All right. Well, Shane, thank you so much. Uh, Stay safe and uh, thanks again for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk to you again in the coming days and weeks. Yeah, always a pleasure. Just a crazy situation in Europe. Hope you guys stay safe over there. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, as you've likely heard in the news, Le Chateau has become the latest, uh, I guess we could say, retail victim of COVID-19. The store now seeking court protection from its creditors, and it will be winding down its operations and liquidating all assets. The uh, Le Chateau chain started several years ago, a Montreal-based store, and this is just one of many retailers who have shuttered their doors and said partly because of the pandemic, they will not be reopening. Well, let's check in with Greg Wilson, Director of Government Relations for the Retail Council of Canada. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Good afternoon, Jill. It's uh, sad news whenever we hear about businesses. Here's a fashion chain, I think, more than 120 stores across Canada, uh, more uh, than 1,000 employees uh, putting out a news release that it has applied for protection from its creditors. Uh, how concerning is it that we're seeing another retailer uh, go through this, uh, this process? Well, I think the sad part is that this, you know, we hear in the national news and in regional news about chains that... Uh, that are going are going through financial difficulties right now. But what we're not hearing about is many of our favorite independent retail stores. So while this is happening with chains, it's happening with just as many independent retailers. It's very sad. Um, Le Chateau sells apparel, and apparel and shoes uh, as categories of retail stores have been very, very badly hurt by COVID-19. Are there other factors here as well in that? Was it, is it COVID that, that uh, has kind of been the final push that's, that led to retailers, some retailers that were already uh, finding it difficult to, to make ends meet? I think that's the case. But, you know, it's, COVID has certainly accelerated that. You had a situation, look, even in BC where you didn't have to close, most sto- stores were closed for two months in the, in the spring. That means they gave up two months of sales. And then if we look at shoes and apparel, these are categories that, are, that in August, which was a good month, were down year over year 12 to 14%. So that indicates a significant problem. They haven't bounced back as well as other categories. And I'm afraid I have a lot of concern for um, some of my favorite clothing and and shoe stores. And uh, I think it points out what we as consumers should be doing, um, supporting the ones we care about deeply as Christmas comes near. And when you mention the independent stores, and you're right, we tend to see uh, more headlines and uh, more more talking about stores like Le Chateau or the bigger chains. But when you're talking about the independent stores as well, are you seeing a shift at all, partly also because of the pandemic, people wanting to come out and support more community-based businesses and those smaller operations? I think that there's no question that people want to support them, but I think there's still evidence that that sector is hurting badly. Um, I, you know, in my work, I speak to small store owners um, operating and even the people who I think are running the best stores with the best customer service, the most um, experienced and successful retailers, people in apparel and shoes are struggling right now. And, um, Really, I, I don't know what to say more than encourage people to go patronize those stores. Maybe think about giving apparel and, shoe, and or shoes as Christmas gifts this year. Has it also been difficult because so many people are shifting and shopping online? I think that's exacerbated it, particularly for small stores. It exacerbates it where you don't have a, have a, where you have a retailer that doesn't have a great online presence. But, um, you know, I think that it's not isolated. I think what's happened is COVID-19 has accelerated a trend toward e-commerce. And the problem is some of these people who don't have strong e-commerce presence have had to very quickly change to have stronger e-commerce. And that's something that's very hard to do, you know, in a short time frame.
And, and uh, is are there examples though that that you've been made aware of or seen where where that people the smaller retailers have been successful in doing that because it seems like it would be a, kind of a sink or swim if you don't have a big online presence or a slick online presence you need to make one. So one of our strongest independent members in BC, um, which is a one store, um, you know, linens shop near Victoria. He reports to me that this has been a, a fairly good year for him. Not great, but, you know, he's been keeping things going fairly well. And that's a category where sales are down year over year by 5%. So it indicates to me if he's a bit outperforming his segment that, it, you know, what what's making him outperform his segment? And so he's got he's a strong retailer with a lot of experience and a lot of good marketing skills, one. Two, he has an excellent website and web presence and, a, and an established practice with e-commerce. He's not just trying to pick it up now. So, you know, that says to me that somebody who has an, already had an online presence, who already um, is work, has worked out many of those kinks, is a bit more successful. But, you know, let's, you know, be honest, it's harder for independent retailers to make a lot of noise in a very crowded social media and e-commerce world. Is Are we shifting away from the, the appreciation? And when you use that example of that smaller retailer, uh, there, there is something to be said for when you can trust the person you're purchasing something from, uh, when they go out of their way to be helpful, they're knowledgeable. I, I mean, there's still that word of mouth. I'm still, uh, if, I, if I am in a scenario like that where I purchase something and I really think I got great service, I'll make sure and tell as many people as I can. If you're thinking, if you need to buy this product too, go to this person. This person was amazing or this store was amazing. Have we, do we still use word of mouth or is word of mouth still valuable or is it all, has it all moved online? I think word of mouth is valuable, but word of mouth has also moved a little into social media in particular, where now we look um, to our friends' Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn accounts or Instagram accounts for examples of things we can buy or good experiences. And retail is a, is very much based on the experience you have in the store. Uh, do you think we're going to see more chains or more independents uh, continue? Are we going to keep seeing these stories of businesses filing for bankruptcy because of this pandemic? Very sadly, I think we're going to. I think we're going to even for a few months after the pandemic. But as the, uh, you know, as the case numbers rise through the fall and winter, I think I'm you know, increasingly concerned about some of the people who I've worried are in jeopardy. And so I think, uh, you know, my answer is it's not very dissimilar. If you have a favorite business, um, now's the time to kind of help them out to make sure that you're patronizing them, to make sure that your friends and family and neighbors are patronizing them. Help those help those independent businesses out. And it's a particularly important time because we're in a time where we've just had Small Business Week. And so, it's important to remember, keep those things in our mind. All right, Greg, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Jill. Well, not the nicest weather out there for cycling today, but uh, I'm sure some people are still hitting the roads on two wheels. And that is the subject of our next discussion. Is riding an e-bike 
cheating. Well, it's the preferred mode of transportation for Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart, and he was called out for it by a driver. He joins me now with that story. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You posted on Facebook about being out and enjoying a bike ride, but you had a bit of a conversation with somebody when you were stopped. What happened? Well, I was stopped at a light at left turn, and he, uh, the sports car pulled up next to me. Uh, he rolled his window down, and he, he spoke to me. He just simply asked if my if my bike was uh, electric, and I responded, "Electric assist." And uh, he said, "Ah, cheating." <laughs> <laughs> As he revved his engine. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say back to him? I just asked, I I nodded toward his uh, engine and asked if it was uh, gasoline or gasoline assist. Um, (laughs) And he sped off when the light turned green. It was, it's it's a sentiment that we hear occasionally, um, those of us who are out on electric assist bikes, uh, that uh, somehow that's cheating. Uh, And it's a a little bit troublesome. We're we're all as good public policy trying to encourage people to get into active transportation and the electric assist bike, from my perspective, is a game changer, uh, particularly for those of us who have a disability that make it more difficult to ride a bike um, or that live in a community like Coquitlam that uh, is built on three different mountains. Uh, these are um, the electric assist bike really allows us to have active transportation at our fingertips. And that was my entire week other than today was uh, riding my bike to the office. Uh, so for people that, that don't have an electric assist bike or aren't familiar, how does it actually work? Well, it, 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 the easiest way to describe it is, is it doubles whatever strength you're putting into the pedals. Uh, and that can be three times the strength or whatever, but it, you have to pedal. And it simply, when when you apply pressure on the pedal, the motor kicks in to uh, effectively increase the pressure you're applying to the pedals by the amount of the wattage of the motor. So, um, for example, one of my hills on the way home is Chilco. It's an 80% grade for uh, about a kilometer. It would take me on a normal bike if I if if my back is working that day. I could it would take me 25 minutes to get up there, and I would be exhausted. Um, on an electric assist bike, I, I can get up there in about seven minutes, and I'm still tired. I'm, I'm but and I've exerted, but uh, it has helped flatten the hill. Right. So it's it's not like a moped or a scooter where you're sitting there and it's taking you up the hill. Like you said, you're still doing the work. Yeah, you still have to do the work, and and it's it's more work uh, going up a hill than it is uh, going on flat, and that of course that's intuitive. But it, it flattens the hill a little bit. It allows that uh, uh, electric assist essentially takes an eight percent grade and makes it more like a four percent grade, and it makes it easier to be able to get up the hill. I only use it particularly for hills. Uh, I don't really use it on the flats. And when you talked about it makes it easier for you if you were on a, a, a non-electric assist bike, it would be much more difficult. Uh, we've been talking about during the pandemic, bike shops have seen huge business with people getting out and, and getting back on their bikes. Have you noticed an increase in the electric, electric assist bikes on the roads? 
Absolutely. We, we've seen um, a tremendous number of, and tremendous increase in biking generally, and I really appreciate that people are trying to be more active, trying to, you know, a, a bicycle on the road uh, essentially reduces congestion, it reduces emissions, it uh, it benefits everybody, including the people that are in their cars. Uh, but uh, electric assist uh, has the added benefit of uh, opening cycling up to not just the avid uh, fit cyclist that we we think of when we're <laughs> when we're driving down the road and there's someone in the bike lane. Um, it opens it up to a lot of us who are um, uh, uh, older and or, and or have disabilities. I have a broken back from a car accident years ago, and so getting back on a bike really required electric assist uh, for me. And it's it's a but it's a game changer. And you posted about this exchange with the driver. What about with other cyclists? Because it is still relatively new. And like you said, we're seeing more and more of these bikes in bike lanes and sharing bike lanes with, with cyclists. Is there an understanding there or is there ever a misunderstanding that, or the thought that electric bikes maybe shouldn't be in that space? I don't. I, I haven't heard any of those sentiments. I've certainly uh, seen uh, uh, a lot of electric assist bikes on regular bike routes. Um, I've heard from some cyclists that are envious, <laughs> and so when they call it cheating, they're they're saying it out of envy rather than out of a uh, uh, out of a, a real feeling like uh, those people don't belong in this space. Um, I, I I think there's there's enough room out there uh, for everybody to to the extent they're able to to get on two wheels and uh, and really enjoy it. Uh, uh, electric assist does remove the pain from the enjoyment of cycling, and it makes it so that yesterday, for example, my my bike ride yesterday was about thirty about fifty kilometers total. Including a, a great ride up the up the Pit River along the dikes and and such, and uh, really got to see wildlife you wouldn't see in in a car. You got to see places you don't get to see in a car, and uh, and I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do that on my way to the office in a regular bike. Have you seen an increase as well? I've noticed in Vancouver, the electric scooters seem to be making, uh, not making a comeback, but making a lot of people are riding them. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of them on sidewalks. But is there any concern on your part that as we do see these types of devices, uh, mobility devices, uh, helping people get around, that there, there might be that kind of clash? I, I, I expect that kind of clash. Uh, the the electric scooter, electric uh, skateboard um, sorts of uh, things are, are a different um, are a different item because they are self powered, uh, or rather, they power themselves. They uh, they don't require the user to exert anything. Um, in the same way that uh, uh, you know the the hoverboards in the movies. Um, it, they they can be problematic, and I and I think we have to catch up the public policy to the evolution of the technology, including with electric assist bikes. We have to make sure the public policy is consistent with with the goals that we're trying to achieve, and in in that case, we're trying to reduce congestion and we're trying to increase active transportation uh, as a mode uh, rather than simply the private automobile. And anything that replaces the private automobile and doesn't have emissions, from my perspective, is a good thing. But we need to make sure the public policy and the rules are there so that everyone's protected. And what do you think that would look like as far as what's lacking with public policy and rules? Well, I, I think we simply have to grapple with the, uh, I, I don't have a solution on the on the uh, 
electric skateboard, electric scooter sorts of uh, things. I, on, on bikes, I suspect that we're going to have to uh, uh, make sure we I- identify the rules right up front. We, you, you're not, you don't belong on a sidewalk, and uh, I, and really under no circumstances should you be on a sidewalk that isn't designed for bikes. Uh, and so, uh, making sure that people understand that. Uh, some people call for insurance. Uh, that said, I already have insurance. It's stuck in my driveway <laughs> because I opted not to use my car all week, which saves ICBC a lot of money, and I'm, I'm still paying for insurance. So it's we have to find that solution, and, and it may well be that if you have if you already buy insurance, that it covers you whatever vehicle you're you're using, including bikes. Um, and that evolution is entirely possible the way ICBC is talking about insuring the driver more than the vehicle. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Just uh, before I let you go, do you think the driver that accused you of cheating on your bike knew he was talking to the mayor? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but <laughs> and, and I'm not, and I actually am not sure he even remembers the conversation because it didn't go it didn't go the way he had planned. I don't think it sounded to me like when he when he left, he had been rudely put in his place, (laughs) from his perspective at least. But it's a chuckle. (laughs) All right. Well, Mayor, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Dear Great Pumpkin, I'm looking forward to your arrival on Halloween night. I hope you will bring me lots of presents. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the great pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. All right, that uh, leads us in to our next story. It is Friday, so we wanted to have a little bit of fun. And this story is about, is about a pumpkin that, well, I haven't seen it in person, but I'm guessing if I was to go to the North Shore and see it, it would be the biggest pumpkin I have ever seen in my entire life. The man who grew this pumpkin has been growing these gourds for years. So what makes this one extra special? Jeff Pelche joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, This is a pretty big pumpkin. Uh, How much does this pumpkin weigh? Yeah, it came in at 923 pounds and uh, was pleasantly surprised with that because we had quite a bit of a cool late spring and early summer. So most of us growers didn't think we were going to get anything too spectacular this year. So, and is this something that you do every year? I've had for the last five and uh, plan on doing it uh, in subsequent years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so take me back then to when you first planted this pumpkin, and I don't want you to give away any secrets or anything like that, but is there a, a trick or do you have a system when you, you first plant to, and to give it the best chance uh, of being the biggest pumpkin? Yeah, so I, I, the biggest part of it actually is healthy soil. So we usually start the season with uh, a, a bit of a soil test, and uh, that will give you uh, an indication of if you need to add any amendments to the soil or whatnot. And then, uh, and then it's just a very good uh, fertilizer regimen and pruning techniques, and uh, and then you're off and running. And, and these things are are genetically they want to grow big, so it's fascinating to watch. <laughs> and when do you plant? You usually would germinate the seed somewhere around the second or third week of April, and then they go into the ground uh, with some some cover just because it's a bit cool at the time around the first week of May. 
and then uh, pollinate the fruit somewhere around the first week in July and harvest in October. So between July and October, it's putting on upwards of a thousand pounds. And do you do anything special on those cold nights? Do you put a blanket around the pumpkin? Do you go out there and talk to it? What do you do to, to make it loved and, and want to grow? <laughs> well, that's that's hilarious because uh, one of my previous pumpkins that I grew uh, I, in my in my other life, I'm a professional classical musician, so I, I said that that pumpkin like Shostakovich. Um, so, you know, playing classical music while I'm weeding in the garden. But um, yes, on cold nights, uh, amazingly enough, uh, it, uh, we do put um, blankets. Because uh, anything lower than sort of 15 degrees at night and the, the growth shuts down. So you want to try and conserve as much heat as possible. And when did you get the, the impression then that this pumpkin, like you said, it had been a cooler season and you didn't have those great expectations for this pumpkin. When did you start to realize, wait a minute, this might be a record breaker. Well, it was funny. It was, uh, you know, sort of towards the end of August. And when we were heading into September, uh, the weather in September turned around and it was quite nice. So it was like, okay, we hit 500 pounds and it was 600 then 700 and it kept growing. And I thought, wow, this, you know, my only regret was what would it have done had this been a normal summer, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, and and do you have the space then? I know uh, you live uh, in North Van. Do you ha- where, do you have the space then in your yard? That's the specific space where you grow the pumpkins. Yeah, that's correct. I have uh, basically one patch. So I have to be very careful. I grow all organically because I don't want to use any chemical fertilizers that would that would cause you to have to either you know give the patch a rest for the year or do anything that would compromise the soil. So I'm very careful with you know, what I'm putting in the soil because I know I'm going to have to grow year on year in the same patch. Um, a lot of the other competitive giant pumpkin growers have enough space to do four or five pumpkins in a year. I can only do basically one main patch pumpkin, then I have two smaller patches that I use. And is there a trick then to the seeds or do you have a specific place where you get the seeds? Uh, well, at this point, I'm uh, doing a combination of my own crosses, uh, so pumpkins that I've grown in previous years, keeping the seeds from those. And then uh, I do, um, uh, there's a, uh, a pumpkin grower from where I grew up in Maine uh, named Charlie Lepresti. He's actually the uh, the weatherman for the CBS affiliate station in Maine, and uh, he's also a giant pumpkin grower and, and has grown well over 1,800 pounds. So he, we've traded seeds back and forth. So I've been, that's actually one of his seeds that I used for this year's pumpkin. And normally then, what would you do? Would you go in a competition with the pumpkin? Yeah, normally we have a competition out at Crossberry Farms. Uh, and in fact, last year we had uh, you know almost 4,000 people at the competition viewing. Uh, we had about uh, 20 or so growers. And uh, just due to the COVID uh, gathering size restrictions this year, they were a bit skittish about hosting this year. So we, we decided to put a pause and, and uh, cancel the event this year. But uh, we hope to be bigger and better next year. And that's one of our big pushes for the year is to try and get more people interested in growing these. So if anyone's interested, um, you know, they can uh, on Facebook. I have Jeff's Giant Pumpkin Adventures. They can follow along there, and happy to send along seeds and mentor any people that are interested in, in getting involved in the hobby. Wow, that's that's very generous of you. Uh, how do you under a normal year when you would enter the competition? How do you move a nine hundred twenty-three pound pumpkin? 
Well, I'm lucky enough to have access to Phil's crane service, and Phil's been fantastic over the past years. He's just a master with his uh, his crane, so that's how we move them. And we've actually uh, got some video of uh, the time lapse of him moving them onto his truck and then offloading them into the front yard. But uh, some of the other growers who can't have access to that, there is actually uh, a contraption that you make a tripod uh, sort of attra- uh, contraption with a engine hoist that you would use. And then there's a, an apparatus called a pumpkin lifting ring, which is a, a steel ring with some straps that cinch all around the bottom of the pumpkin that allows you to lift them up. Yeah, I would imagine it's a it's a delicate system. You got to make sure you know what you're doing yeah. there. That that could <laughs> things could go sideways. Yeah, you certainly don't want two thousand pounds of pumpkin falling on you. <laughs> no. Um, so this year, do you carve the pumpkin, or have you noticed have people been coming by to take a look at it? What's been happening? Yeah. So again, normally we would have brought the pumpkins post way off competition to it's about time nursery and burnaby and anyone who lives in that area knows we've done that in the past couple of years and it's been quite a successful event um but again due to covid size restrictions we figured you know let's be let's err on the safe side and we just decided to do it on the front yard so uh sunday uh rob turf who's a, a local carver um sculptor uh, came out and uh, transformed the top part of the pumpkin into one of the xenomorphs from the alien franchise and uh and it's been great because most most years the neighborhood kind of sees them growing in the backyard but they don't get to see them really up close and personal because we whiff them off to the competition and then off to the carving so having it in the front yard has been great for the neighborhood because they actually get to come and take pictures and see them so it's been really cool to see the stream of people coming by and taking selfies and taking pictures of the pumpkin nice Uh, something you can do a distance and do safely this uh, even with the pandemic exactly (laughs) well jeff thanks so much for joining us to talk about this it's just fascinating i had no idea that so many people uh, right here in bc and around the world are uh, take part in this are involved in this and and just all that goes into it so thank you so much for joining us to talk about it today Oh, you're welcome, and and thanks for having me. That is Jeff Pelletier, the giant pumpkin grower and owner. Now, if you are interested, if you are going to be on the North Shore and you want to go see the pumpkin, because that's one of the strange things this year, too, is he's left it on display because there won't be the moving it with the crane and taking it to the competition. It will be outside his home in the 600 block of East 7th Street, and it will be on display until Halloween. And uh, fear not, I asked Jeff it would be, if it's okay to broadcast the location. He said absolutely. So the south side of the 600 block of 7th Street.